0: Now, our Bible reading this morning is continuing our series in Matthew's Gospel in the run-up to Easter, and God willing, we will um, reach the triumphal entry uh, on Palm Sunday uh, as our aim before uh, Easter Sunday. Uh, So our reading today is from Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through to 28, Uh, and Alison is going to read that for us today.
1: Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. Jesus predicts his death a third time. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. A mother's request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Now, if you do have your Bible there, please do turn back to Matthew chapter 20 as we look at this passage this morning. Now, it's appropriate today that by accident or by design or just by providence, that on Mothering Sunday in today's passage, uh, that we focus upon a mother and her request for her sons. Now, we all of course have a mother, don't we? Uh, Some of you here today are mothers and grandmothers. And if there's one thing that we know about mothers, it's generally that they want the best for their children, don't they? Mothers want what's best for their children. They want to support their children as best as they can. And they, they want to make sure that their children get on in life. Is that not true? Now today we see a mother coming before Jesus, the mother of Zebedee's sons, i.e. James and John. Now most likely, and we can work this out from the other Gospels about uh, the woman who were at the cross and the the woman who went to the tomb, most likely the mother of James and John, the, the wife of Zebedee, was Salome. And it's also likely that Salome was Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. That is quite likely. And so actually, this morning, what do we have? We have Jesus' aunt, Salome, coming to Jesus with a request for James and John, Jesus' cousins. Now in this culture, and indeed in the Bible, it's not unusual for a mother to petition on the part of her sons. In the Old Testament, perhaps you remember uh, Bathsheba, petitioning King David about about Solomon becoming the next king, for example. Now in Mark's Gospel, uh, in the kind of uh, parallel uh, version of this story in Mark's Gospel, uh, Salome is not mentioned at all, but it's James and John who come directly to Jesus To ask their request. And clearly in Matthew's gospel, in the passage that we read today, even though it's their mother who comes to Jesus, it's clearly James and John who have taken the initiative to to send their mother to Jesus. They've got this idea in their head, and they're like, Mum. As you know happens in your life, Mum. Well, will you go? Will you go and and tell Jesus? Will you go and ask Jesus something on our behalf? Perhaps because they were too scared to do it themselves. And so we have a mother who clearly wants the best for her sons. But it's the sons who who have pushed her forward to make this request. And so Salome, what do we find in this passage? Salome comes before Jesus. And she kneels before him, a a sign of deference. And she asks if James and John can sit at the right and left of Jesus in the kingdom. In other words, whether her two sons, James and John, could have the places of honour. That's what she's asking. Now remember here that in the last chapter, in chapter 19, verse 28 that Jesus spoke about about um, the, the disciples being on, on 12 thrones around him, judging the tribes of Israel. Remember that passage, chapter 19? And so with that in their minds, James and John are thinking, hold on here, we would quite like the places of honour. We want to be in the right and left of Jesus. That's their motivation. Now it's clear here that though Salome has made this request of Jesus. Even though Salome is the one who's kneeled before Jesus and made this request, it's quite clear that James and John are just standing with her. They're right behind her, aren't they? Because Jesus addresses them directly in verse 22. You can't really see it in the English translation. But when he says you, it's plural in Greek. Jesus says you, James and John, don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they reply in the affirmative. Now, the cup that Jesus is referring to is perhaps a bit clearer when we see Jesus referring to a cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, a bit like what we saw with the children this morning, because it's the cup of the wrath of God. It's the cup of of suffering. And Jesus is saying to James and John, Are you really willing to suffer as I am going to suffer? Now they say that they are. Now the fact is, and Jesus knows this, that they will. And Jesus affirms this, doesn't he? You will suffer, James and John. You perhaps don't really realize what you're saying at the moment, but you will suffer. And if you know your Bible... You will know that James and John suffer. What happened to them? Well, James is martyred in Acts chapter 12. John is exiled. You find that in the book of Revelation. He ends up on the island of, of Patmos. They will suffer. James will be martyred. But what we see from this exchange and what we've been thinking about over the past few weeks is that the disciples have not grasped the nature of the kingdom. You see, before we we read about Salome coming to Jesus with this request, what did we read? We saw, and Alison read this for us this morning, we saw Jesus, in the clearest terms yet, describe what was going to happen to him as he predicts his death a third time. You see, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, what does he do? He takes the twelve aside and he says to them that in Jerusalem he'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that they will condemn him to death, that he will be handed over to the Gentiles, that he will be mocked, he will be flogged, and he'll be crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. It's very clear. In that first part of our reading, isn't it? Verses 17 to 19. Jesus in the clearest way yet, ex- explains what's going to happen to him. Now as an aside here, sometimes it's said that, that what happens to Jesus at the cross is God making the best of a bad lot. That it all happened to Jesus by accident and not by design. And and that, you know, oops, you know, God made a mistake here. And oh, you know, God made it all right in the end. Sometimes we hear that. Sometimes we hear that preached in churches, incidentally. But what I want you to see here is that Jesus knew exactly what he had come to do. And he knew exactly what was going to happen to him. This has not happened to him yet, but he knew clearly what was going to happen. It was no surprise to him. But what is quite surprising, and I I hope you, you notice... How awkward it is, this this transition. Jesus just said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then on the third day, I'm going to be raised to life again. And then what happens in the very next passage? You've got a mother coming with her two sons. And they're like, we sit in your right and left in glory. You see, after all this teaching about the upside-down nature of the kingdom, that the first will be last and the last will be first, and after taking a child in the midst of these huge disciples, I don't know if they were actually huge, but that's the picture in my mind. A little child, all these men, gruff men standing around them and saying that the disciples need to enter the kingdom like a little child. After all these things, the disciples still don't understand. And remember, who are James and John? They're part of the inner three, and they don't get it. They're still looking out for themselves. Now, but when you think about this, you think of all the teaching we've looked at, probably for the last month. You know, the first will be last, and the last will be first. It's been constant for the disciples. When Jesus answers James and John this morning, he's so restrained, isn't he? Would you not have been so frustrated? You know, if you're a teacher and your class doesn't get it. I live with a teacher. I know what that's like. Jesus has been teaching all this time. And he tells the disciples that they will suffer. He tells James and John they'll suffer. But it's not for him who grants to sit at his right and left in glory, that that's for the Father. Now, it seems to me that Salome and James and John have approached Jesus about this away from the other disciples. They've kind of approached him in private. They wanted to say, look, you know, this is just for us. Jesus, what are you going to say about this? But then we hear in this passage that the other disciples, so the other nine that are left, not nine, ten, the other ten that are left, they hear what's happened and the request that's been made. And they're indignant. Now, I don't believe that they're indignant with James and John because, you know, the other disciples have got it. The other ten say, look, first should be last and last should be first. You shouldn't be asking something about that with Jesus. That's not why they're indignant. Why are they indignant? It's because they wanted to be the ones in the place of honour. And they're annoyed at James and John for, for asking first, for jumping the queue. Oh, I wish I'd thought about that first. I'm so annoyed. The message version of the Bible puts it that the other disciples lost their tempers and we thoroughly disgusted with James and John. Not because of what they asked. But simply that they wanted the places of honour too. Now how's Jesus going to deal with all this? Well in verse 25 we see Jesus getting the disciples together. He basically holds a conference. That's what you do when there's a decision to be made and you need to, to get reconciliation, you, you get a conference, don't you? And Jesus again makes it clear to the disciples that they are not to act like the world. They're not to lord it over others. But if they want to become great, they're to become a servant. If they want to be first, then they're to become a slave. Now, of course, servants and slaves were looked down on. In Jesus' time. They were despised roles. I guess when we think of those things today. We don't want to be a servant. We don't want to be a slave, do we? But that's what Jesus says. That the disciples are to be. And what we by extension are to be. Now. Why is Jesus saying this? Why is this the nature of the kingdom of heaven? Well, I hope what you see is that this is because this is the nature of God. Because Jesus himself did not come to be served, but to serve. He is the the servant king of Isaiah. He is the one who gives his life as a ransom for many. Jesus puts the will of the Father first. He puts you and I first. He serves. He pays the price that we might live. He gives his life as a ransom to pay the price that we could not pay. And he is willing to take the cup and drink it to the very dregs. Jesus is an example to the disciples of servanthood. And he's also an example to us of of how we should serve. You see, James and John's request was misguided Because it was about personal ambition, so that they would look good. Now, not all ambition is bad, but but when it's greedy, when it hurts and uses people, when it exalts uh, us over others and, and pulls people down rather than building people up, then it's not good. You see, our ambition must be linked to selfless servanthood. Now this kind of servanthood is only possible because of Jesus' servanthood on the cross. Because the cross releases us from the power of sin and from pride and, and from self-centeredness. You see, before you're a Christian, what happens in your life? You're trying to live out a good life. You're hoping, you know, maybe God might accept me if I do enough good stuff. But we all know that we fall short of the glory of God. We know that we cannot do enough good stuff that God will will accept us. But when we look to the cross, what happens? Well, we understand Jesus has paid the price for our sin. That no longer do we have to to live a life of, of striving to try and please God because Jesus has perfectly pleased God. Therefore, we are released. Released from guilt. Released from sin. Released from shame. Released from from trying to to strive and and to, to, to please God. We're released from pride. We're released from trying to be somebody that we're not. We're released from this world. You see, when we believe and trust in Christ, we're a new creation. And we're to live out our lives in a a different kind of way. To to God's glory and and not our own. We are called to radical service. And servanthood. And I hope you remember that we looked at a few weeks ago. Do you remember the disciples said to Jesus, Look, we we followed you. We followed you. What what is left for us? Remember what Jesus said. He said, whatever you've given up. I will give you a hundred times as much and eternal life. See, I hope that your experience as a Christian this morning, because it's certainly my experience, is when you believe and trust in Jesus, you never suffer loss. You never suffer loss. You know that joy inside. You know that peace within. Now it's upside down from what the world says, because the world says, Put your, push yourself up, push yourself forward. What does Jesus say? Jesus says serve. Why serve? Because I have served you. Show love. Show kindness. Show grace. And when you do that. The most amazing thing happens. Because you recognize. You're much more fulfilled. Than if you tried to push yourself forward. In the first place. We are called to radical service. And servanthood. Now. As I was preparing for today, I was reading this week about a Christian marriage counsellor who teaches married couples to serve. Now the counsellor diagnosed that many marriages experience tug-of-war syndrome, where each partner tugs to have his or her needs met by their spouse. Wives want their needs met, so they're pulling this way, and they expect their husbands to do that. Husbands wait for their own needs to be met before they meet their wives' needs, and so they're pulling the other direction. Now, they can reach a, a state of equilibrium where each is tugged hard enough so that they're relatively satisfied, and so there is this tension. And in tug of war, as you know, an equilibrium is only maintained through tension. And so many couples grow tired of the continual struggle. And so in the end up, they give up. So what this particular marriage counsellor did was to ask a married couple to do an experiment and to commit themselves for two months never to ask to have their personal needs met, but to only to ask how each can meet the other person's needs. Now the marriage counsellor said this, Couples usually react incredulously when I propose this experiment. One young woman said quite honestly, I'm so used to nagging my husband that I'll never get him to help round the house. He'll never take me out to dinner. He just doesn't think about my needs. But when we made it clear how we were going to attempt to follow God's pattern of grace towards us, she was amazed at her husband's response. He developed a whole new set of daily priorities where he consistently asked, what does she need today that I can supply? The experiment ends up, in most cases, as the basis of a new kind of marital relationship in which servanthood is the operating guideline. The equilibrium that couples attain is not one of tension but of grace and of service. That kind of graceful equilibrium is possible only by a fundamental transformation when we experience God's grace and mercy in our lives. Do you see the transformation? When people stop thinking about themselves and their own needs and think about others, And that example is only in marriage. Only one aspect of our relationships. Can you imagine if as God's people, compelled by his grace, that we radically served, that we served one another, that we served our families, our friends, our neighbours, our community, and that we do so not to make ourselves look good, but because we're not our own. We belong to God, and we want to glorify him. So today, let's understand that Jesus is the servant king. He came to serve and not to be served. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And following his example, may we strip away everything that we think may make us important and simply consider ourselves as servants. Servants of Christ serving each other may we show radical servanthood now the last thing that I want us to think through this morning as it's Mother's Day what do we start with this morning we started with a mother coming to Jesus coming with a request I believe that Salome's heart was in the right place she wanted the best For her sons. But I want you just to trace through because I believe Salome would have been there when she heard Jesus' responses to James and John. Perhaps Salome needed a little lesson as to what servanthood was about. Well, where else do we find Salome? Well, firstly, we find her at the cross. We see Jesus' mother, Mary, there. But we also see Salome. In fact, in one of the Gospels, and it's John's gospel, it says the mother of the sons of Zebedee standing there. So Salome's there, and she sees Jesus die at the cross. Where else do we find Salome? We find Salome there on the Sunday morning, going to the tomb, the expectation that they will find the tomb sealed over. The body of Jesus is still there. And yet what do they find? The stone is rolled away. Jesus is not there. He is risen. Throughout the Bible, and certainly throughout the nativity part of the Bible, what do we see Mary doing? We see her pondering in her heart all that people have said to her, all that Jesus is. I wonder, Salome... Mary's sister, whether as she thought through her request that she'd made to Jesus and then saw Jesus dying on the cross and then saw Jesus rising again on the third day, whether she pondered it in her heart and said, you know, that request that I made on behalf of my sons, that was not the right request. You see, if I truly wanted what was good for my sons, then they should be serving like Jesus has served. And I want to say to you, as mothers today, as grandmothers, as fathers and grandfathers, if you want the best for your children, for your grandchildren today, it's not necessarily about pushing them forward, is it? If you truly want the best for them, you really want them to believe and trust in Jesus, That's the best thing that they could ever do. And when they believe and trust in Jesus, then they have an example of servanthood. It's not about what the world sees. It's about what God sees. Because you know something? When you serve here on earth, you'll surely build up treasure in heaven. Is that not the reality today? I believe Slome learned a lesson. May we also learn a lesson today. May we pray for our children and our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, whoever it may be. May they grow up to know Jesus and may they serve him because Jesus has served us. Shall we just pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we come to this passage today, we can perhaps be a little harsh on James and John for pushing their mother forward and making this request of Jesus. And yet often when we look at our own lives, if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with you, are we any different? Quite often we can push ourselves forward. We can seek to push others down and pull others down. We can seek to make ourselves look good rather than serve you. But Father, we thank you that throughout the Gospels in the life of Jesus that we have the greatest example of servanthood. Because Jesus, who is very God, who was there at the beginning when everything was created, He came down into this broken and this needy world that he laid his glory by that he came in weakness he came to this world and he suffered and he died and he did so to please you Lord God and also because he thought of us Lord God, we thank you that we have such a radical example. And Father, we pray that following Jesus' example, that we might be people who serve, that we might serve within the church, that we might serve our families, that our marriage bonds might be built on servanthood, that we would serve our community, because we recognize, Heavenly Father, that this is something that is so countercultural, that it's so different, that the world cannot, but when it understands that the church is different, and how these Christians love each other, and how they love the world, and how they don't trample on other people, then they can only ask the question is God real? Is God really there? what is it to be a Christian? Father, we pray that as we live out radical lives of servanthood, the Heavenly Father, people would ask the question, why is that person different? Who are they pointing towards? And Father, we pray in our lives that whatever we do, whatever we say, however we act, that we would all point towards the Lord Jesus. And Father, on this Mothering Sunday, we do believe that in this passage, Salome wanted the best for her sons. But Father, as she stood at the cross, as she stood at the empty tomb, we pray that she would have seen something different. That if she truly wanted the best for her sons, then they would trust and believe in Jesus and they would follow his example. And Father, as we think of our sons and daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters, our nieces, our nephews today, Heavenly Father, we want the best for them. And Father, we recognize that the best thing for them is to be a new creation in Christ. Heavenly Father, help us to be diligent in prayer for that. Help us to be a good witness to our families. Help us to stand firm for you. And Father, help us as Christians not to show the Christian life as being a boring life, but a wonderful life, a joyful life, a life where no matter what happens, no matter when difficulty comes, we know radical peace and we know how an anchor that is steadfast and sure that we know your love in a very deep and meaningful way. So, Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word today, we pray. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.